and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Thank you, Sharon. I hope you appreciate me and Sharon saying ask instead of ask in a natural language. Good morning, my name's Colin. I'm one of the pastors here. Great to have you with us. Um, Have you ever been in one of those situations where you feel like everybody else knows what they're supposed to be doing and you're the only one who doesn't and you're not sure whether to admit to it or just go along with it? Uh, If you've just started school or uni, you might well have felt that a few times in recent weeks. I'm going to start with a a clip here, which I just think captures this so well. This is a clip of a guy called John Redwood, an English politician. He's English, but at the time he was the Welsh secretary. And at his his first conference in Wales, and he really should have done his homework as he begins this conference singing the Welsh National Anthem. So I just want you to notice the look of terror on his face. Play that, so thanks, Annalise. If it'll work. Fantastic, hey? But haven't we all been there? I wonder, have you ever felt that way about prayer? Like everybody else knows what they're doing, uh, what, what they're supposed to say and how they're supposed to say it. Uh, and you feel like you've just got it all wrong, if indeed you pray at all. But in today's passage that Sharon's just read for us, um, Jesus' disciples, they got a bit of disciple envy. You know, they know that John the Baptist's disciples were taught by him to pray, and, and they want Jesus to teach them his own method. Because uh, Luke's gospel um, particularly focused on Jesus' prayer life. It's almost as if um, Jesus squeezed in the rest of his ministry around his prayer times in Luke's gospel. Well, let's get our bearings in Luke again. So, uh, let's see if we remember. Luke 1 to 9 answers the question, who is this man? We did that last year. And then the section we're in is about following Jesus, about being his disciple, um, what it means to follow him. Uh, And then in chapter 10, the cameras preached to us, we saw that uh, we're on a mission from God, sharing the good news that in Jesus, the kingdom of God, God's rule over our hearts and creation is near. And we've seen that true love love for God is expressed in love of our neighbor with a good Samaritan. And then just in case that leads us to think that following Jesus is just about doing lots of stuff. Um, Last week with Mary and Martha, we saw that there are good things to do, but the best thing to do 
is to sit at Jesus' feet. And for us, that means um, reading and obeying his word to us in the Bible and loving Jesus, being in relationship with him. That we're not to get so busy doing stuff about Jesus that we forget to trust in him and to know him. Uh, so um, today's passage, Cam- Cameron, there's an outline in your leaflet there. Cameron's been wowing us with his um, all points all beginning with the same letter. Uh, I think I've just about got there. I was going to begin with introduction, but that doesn't work. So we've, we've got to begin with balanced, belligerent, and believing. Okay, if that helps. Some people like a structure. Some people like to doodle. Whatever helps this sermon go in. Okay. So first of all, begin with. So keep your Bibles open there. Verse 1, chapter 11. One of Jesus' disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Now I wonder, how would you answer that request? So if you had a friend who's just become a Christian and asks you, how should I pray? What would you say? And there's some ideas that I've been taught uh, over the years. Um, you might have heard of acts. So that's a pattern for prayer. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving and supplication. So supplication is a posh way of saying asking for things. Or there's uh, pray. As an acronym, praise, repent, ask, yield. Or what about this one? Like this one, push. Pray until something happens. <laughs> That's one for the maternity ward. <laughs> well, for now, I just want you to park our ideas of what we think. We're going to see what Jesus says and see if these ideas still stand up. So have a look at verse 2, and I want us to see something that's easy to miss. When you pray, say. In other words, use words when you pray. And, you know, the simplicity of this prayer shows us that it doesn't need to be fancy words, only lots of words. But whether it's out loud or, or in our heads, when we pray, we're to use words. Now, you've probably heard quotes like this one from a Scottish theologian called William Barclay. Uh, He says, it may be that one of our great faults in prayer is that we talk too much and listen too little. When prayer is at its highest, we wait in silence for God's voice to us. That's what William Barclay says. Jesus says, when you pray, say Barclay is wrong. Words, using words in prayer is not second order. It's not less spiritual than silence. Now, I think all that's going on here is a category error. So silence is, of course, can can be helpful when we're trying to listen to God when we're reading the Bible. So as we saw last week, the way to listen to God is to sit at Jesus' feet uh, with our Bibles open through his word And asking his Holy Spirit, who inspired those words, to speak to us through them. So read the Bible and silently reflect on what you've just read. Great idea. That's the equivalent of Mary sitting at Jesus' feet. But when Jesus is asked by his disciples to teach him to pray, prayer seems to be a distinct activity which involves us using words 
to say things to God. Which, of course, makes sense given God's nature. You know, God's not some ethereal force or cloud or... Um, God is personal. He's knowable. God's relational. We don't have to sort of mystically tap into him. Now, we're close friends and family. We can enjoy a comfortable silence, can't we? That's all right. That's a good sign. But those comfortable silences are built on the relationships that are underpinning them. Relationships which were formed using words. Being Jesus' disciple, it's not, it's not a concept or, or, or a power or ideas. We're, we're following a person. We're following Jesus who perfectly represents God the Father so that we can know him personally. In fact, we can know him very personally. Verse 2. When you pray, say, Father. Now, we're used to hearing God being called Father, aren't we? It's it's just sort of part and parcel of what we've grown up with. But for Jesus' audience, this was radical. Because good good Jewish people like the disciples were so respectful and fearful of God that they only ever sort of obliquely referred to his name. And that's because they were rightly aware of how perfect and holy and majestic and, and other God is, and that how our sin keeps us at a distance from him. But now here comes Jesus telling them to call God in heaven, Father, Dad, how can this be? Well, Jesus has enjoyed this father-son relationship with the Father in eternity in heaven And he gave that place up in in heaven, gave that up to die for us on the cross. And his sacrifice covers over and pays for the price of our sins. So that if we trust in him, we can approach God. Because Jesus has made us clean. He's justified us. And that's good news in itself, but there's more. Not only does Jesus justify us before God, he also makes us adopted Children of God. So Romans 8 puts it like this. Uh, The spirit you received, and we'll hear about the Holy Spirit at the end of the passage. The spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Abba, that's like the equivalent of Daddy. Really personal, intimate name. Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit. That we are God's children. Through Jesus, we are considered children of God. Uh, Theologian Jim Packer puts it like this. Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Higher even than justification. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father... Is greater. So we begin our prayer with Father. Now, if I say the word jazz to you, it brings up uh, lots of ideas, doesn't it? Sort of um, 
lots of awful sounds and terrible clubs with are all smoky and a load of musicians just trying to impress each other without much regard to the audience that are there. If you like jazz, Alex, I'm sorry, but um, that's what jazz brings up for me. One word, it says so much. Okay? When we begin our prayer, Father, uh, we're saying so much. We're saying that we know we are unworthy of approaching God on our own. We're saying that we belong to Jesus and we trust in him with our lives. When we say, Father, we're saying we're coming to God purely on the basis of undeserved grace that he's shown to us, which brings us forgiveness. Saying, Father, says we reverently submit to God's will, acknowledging his authority. And saying Father means we're approaching him with childlike confidence, knowing his loving care for us. Now, the acts pattern of prayer that we talked about before, I know many people find that helpful. And adoring, confessing, and thanksgiving, all great things we should do. But I guess the danger with that is that the, the ACT part of that the danger is that can become a work for us, a kind of a buttering up God, a kind of justifying ourselves before we start asking himself, asking him for things. And, but when we call God Father, that is doing the adoration, that is doing the confession, and we really mean it, the thanksgiving, freeing us to get on with what God wants us as his children to do. To ask him for good things. So, what words should we pray to our Father? What should we pray about? And how? And well, our next point, we're to pray balanced prayers. Balanced prayers, excuse me. Now, I've got to point out to you, what Jesus shows us here about prayer isn't all the Bible's got to say about prayer. So another couple of quick examples. Uh, Ephesians 6, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. So different things to pray for there. Uh, and Philippians 4, you'll probably know, do not be anxious about anything but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. But what Jesus does give us here is our primary template or model of prayer and, and our primary motive for praying. Uh, we can pray anything. We can obey those other verses about prayer in the pattern of the prayer that Jesus teaches us, uh, without it feeling like a square peg in a round hole. See, Jesus' prayer gives us insight into what's on his heart, what he wants to be on his disciples' hearts, what he wants to be on our hearts. Uh, when I grew up, um, this was our corner shop, Mr. Uller's corner shop. It's great. I used to get 10p to buy a packet of chips on the way to school, could go in Mr. Uller's, get a whole packet of out-of-date jammy dodgers. Good shot. 
Now, this was in the days before barcode scanners. You know, they used to have those little stickers with the price on that went on everything. But we used to say that Mrs. Uller was the original barcode scanner because she had terrible eyesight, big milk bottle glasses. And she, you didn't want to get anything too embarrassing because whatever you got, she picked up and went, and then put it down again. And you could almost hear the scanner go, beep, and she did it. Anything you bought went through those, that close inspection filter of Mrs. Uller's gaze. Now, we can pray anything. And when we hold it up to this prayer of Jesus that he taught, if we see if it lines up with that, if it lines up with that, it lines up with what's on his heart. Now, I've called this section balanced because there is a balance of requests um, for God and requests for us. But actually, this prayer is all about one thing, about God's kingdom. It's asking God for things to do with his kingdom, his rule, and it's asking about our experience of it. So let's have a quick look at the prayer itself, verses 2 to 4. And did you notice... It's all request. So I think sometimes we feel like we need to work up to asking for stuff because we see hallowed be your name as adoration, as worship. But actually, for the language geeks, it's a passive imperative. And that means, in other words, it's saying, please make it be that your name is honoured. It's a request. It's asking God for his name to be honoured. It's asking that people will see God for who he is, perfect and good and holy and generous, and honour him. And we honour God ourselves when we get on with asking him for things. So hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. It's a request for God's rule in the hearts and lives of people and over creation. And so for the disciples, they'd recognized God's rule was breaking in in new ways through Jesus and all the things that he was up to. When we pray, your kingdom come, we do so knowing that through Jesus, the victory is already won. And God is simply holding off his return in full victory so that as many as possible can accept and opt into Jesus' rescue into that victory. So we're living in the last days between Jesus' first and second coming. So when we pray, we're praying for God's rule to break into the here and now more and more in anticipation of that full kit and caboodle of God's kingdom arriving on Jesus' return. So it's that present reality that the kingdom's broken in, it's on the way fully, and that future certainty, that's to shape our prayers. So let's work this, do a works example with a trivial example. Hands up if you've ever prayed for a car park. Now, should we? Should we pray for a car park? Well, perhaps. Let's uh, hold it up to Jesus' prayer and work, out, work it out. If we're running late for the cinema at Marion, God's probably not all that interested whether you get a park or not. If you're trying to visit a friend in hospital so you can help them read the Bible and pray with them and you're running out of time, you should probably pray for that car park. 
your kingdom come. God's kingdom, his loving rule over people in creation is what's on Jesus' heart. God's kingdom is why we're on God's mission, like the 72 in chapter 10. God's kingdom is why we are to love our neighbor. God's kingdom is why what Martha did was good, but what Mary did was best. So carrying on verse 3, give us each day our daily bread. So give us each day what we need to live for the kingdom. Give us what we need so we don't reduce life to being about survival and comfort, but so that we can get on with living undistracted for Jesus' priorities. Verse 4, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. If we trust in Jesus, we've got full assurance that he has won forgiveness for us. And continually asking for forgiveness is putting into words that we're convicted of our sin, that we turn away from it, and we trust in Jesus for our standing before God. Uh, Knowing forgiveness came at such a great cost to Jesus for ourselves, we must also forgive and pray for the strength to do so. Forgive others and pray for the strength to do so. And lead us not into temptation. Um, God's kingdom isn't fully here, you've probably noticed. Not here yet. So we will battle with sin until it is or until um, we die. So this is a, a prayer to stand in the face of temptation. And it seems to me the more mature the Christian I've met, the more, not less, the more acutely aware they are of the need to pray for forgiveness and for help resisting temptation. So there it is, um, very short in this form. And yet, if we use this little prayer to shape and direct our prayers about everything filtered through it, we will daily grow in our reliance on Jesus. And we'll grow in having Jesus' perspective having Jesus' heart, Jesus' concern. Our hearts will increasingly align with his as we sit at his feet as our Lord, as our Savior, and as our brother before God the Father. So, given God already knows what we need, and he knows what he wants, how should we pray? Our third heading, we should be belligerent. Now, I don't want to take anything away from our reverence of God, appreciating his holiness and majesty and otherness. But we can't go past the fact that when Jesus is asked directly to teach us to pray, integral to his teaching unit is a funny story in verses 5 to 8, about being an annoying neighbor. So let's have a look and ask, us, ask ourselves what practical attitude to prayer we should have. Now, Cameron helped us last week understand the importance of hospitality in first century Palestine. So the, 
disciples are asked to imagine um, a mate on a journey has arrived and it would fall to them to provide food and shelter. And not to do so would bring shame on the whole village. So the, the pressure's on. So he knocks on the neighbor's door, asking for bread. He's doing the right thing. It's a, it's a good cause. Understandably, the neighbor's a bit grumpy. You know, it's going to be a big hassle for him to get, out, get up, get out of bed and help his neighbor out. Verse 8. I tell you, though, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship... Yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So the point is not that God is a grumpy neighbor. God's not like that. Now, this is a way of teaching, and there's two examples in this passage. This is a way of teaching that says, how much more? So if an ordinary grumpy neighbor will help you because you're annoying, belligerent, and showing bare-faced cheek. Not even because he likes you. How much more then will God, who loves you perfectly, how much more, and longs to give you good things, how much more is he worth praying this prayer to? So in the story, one social norm, don't wake up your neighbor and be an annoying neighbor, has been trumped by the need to welcome a visitor. So one truth about God, his holy, majestic otherness, is trumped by his desire for us to approach him with childlike confidence, with belligerence, to ask him things. Now our awareness of our sin before God can, can naturally make us timid, But think about it. To refuse to ask God for good things is to deny that Jesus is sufficient. Refusing to ask God for things denies that Jesus has won us adoption into a family position where we can ask our Heavenly Father for things. Staying too timid to ask God for things is actually saying... I'm standing before you on the merits of my own humility. It's claiming we deserve an audience that we really don't. It is counterintuitive, but it is in our boldly, belligerently approaching our Heavenly Father to ask for good things that we demonstrate our humble submission and trust in Jesus. Ask God for good things boldly, belligerently. Uh, Final heading. We can ask with confidence, believing, believing that God will answer. Uh, So verse 9 and 10. So I say to you, ask, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Now the context tells us that this doesn't mean if we only pray hard enough, 
God will give us whatever we want. Because you know, what, what if you asked for something evil? God's not going to give you that. No, the context tells us that if we ask God for stuff that honors his name and expands his kingdom, that fits in, if you inspect it, with Jesus' prayer, he will give it to us. So an example. Uh, a teenage girl prays for her friend at school to become a Christian. She knows her friends had a troubled home life and longs for her to know the security of God's love. So she prays. Nothing happens. But then a couple of years after they've left school, her friend calls. She's become a Christian. See, another Christian had been on a bus praying for opportunities to share the gospel. And our friend's friend uh, heard the gospel and believed she wants to come to her old school friend's church. So she goes. She meets a handsome young man there. Uh, they, have they marry, they have children. Some years on, she's praying for him. He's Christian, but he's heading in the wrong direction. So she prays for him, but then he comes back to Bible study. God begins to change him. They move to Australia. They pray that God will give them his priorities, give them his work to do. And they end up in a church called Trinity Bay, led by John Warner. Who in the meantime has been asking for workers for the harvest. Now you could tell your own story. That was mine and Sharon's story, if you haven't guessed it. But Sharon's friend, uh, and Sharon, and the lady on the bus, myself... John Warner. God could have done all that without any of us asking anything. God sovereignly could have made all that happen. But what a privilege it is to be included, to be used by God and made key to his plans for there to be good stuff that wouldn't happen unless we asked for it. Um, my family are planning to scatter my mum's ashes in a muddy Welsh field that she loved camping in. I don't know why she loved camping there. Um, it's a bit far for me to go, so I'm, I'm not going, so I'll miss it. Now, it will still happen. It will still be poignant, and knowing my family, funny and uncouth and reverent. But I'll miss out on being a part of it. So, and all the relational value and the memories and the experience... In prayer, God himself invites us to be integral to what he's doing in the world and enjoy the relational closeness to God that that gifts to us. And the thing is, many of us have prayed for good kingdom things. We prayed for family and friends to be converted. And it hasn't happened now, I don't have any answers why. But what we do know is that God is good. We know that it can't be because God doesn't love us. God longs to give us good gifts. Now, Jesus shows us this in this passage with another how much more. Um, if his disciples, who, by the way, his own disciples he calls evil, yet calls him to call God the Father... If his disciples know how to give nice gifts to their kids, verse 13, 
how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The Holy Spirit is the ultimate good that God can give us. He gives us himself. So for the disciples then, he would come after Jesus' ascension at Pentecost. For us, he comes as he empowers us to hear and to respond to the gospel. And the Holy Spirit gives life to our prayer. And the Holy Spirit is the one who answers our prayer. What Je- uh, to still quote from Cameron, and I'm sure he stole it from someone else. What Jesus makes possible, the Holy Spirit makes actual. So our growing in relationship with Jesus, his word taking root in us and producing fruit which shows God's rule in our lives, that all comes from the Holy Spirit. So to conclude then, are you praying as Jesus taught? If you're not praying, and probably all of us feel like we aren't praying enough, even if we are praying, ask yourself, why not? Is it because you feel unworthy of approaching God? Well, on your own, you'd be right. But Jesus has won you adoption into his family so that you can call God Father. Maybe it's because you don't feel that your concerns, they're so minor, they're not worth bothering God with. Well, maybe you're right. But if, they are, if your request is to, the aim is to have God's name honoured, to grow his kingdom, to bring about forgiveness of sin, then Jesus commands you to ask and to seek and to knock. And maybe we don't pray because our pride, because our pride leads us to think we don't need to pray. Jesus went to the cross to make it so that you can call God Father. A relationship with God your Father is the point of your existence. And you can't have a relationship without words. Uh, maybe we don't pray because we doubt that God is good. Well, the cross shows us that God puts our needs, even when we were against him, above his own. God longs to give us good things and longs for us to ask for them so that we can enjoy his provision relationally. So pray as Jesus taught. Use words to approach your Father in heaven with childlike confidence. There are good things that won't happen unless you shamelessly ask for them. He wants to include you in people coming to call him Father. And as you pray for what is on Jesus' heart, your heart will take that shape too by his spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, please uh, just help us appreciate afresh what a joy and a miracle it is that we can call you Father. Uh, We're sorry for where we've been reluctant in coming to you in prayer. We thank you that you've um, included us in your plans for the world.
and that we can know you relationally as a child knows its father. Uh, Please help us to pray. In Jesus' name, amen.